Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inside Asia podcast from the Center for Asian Democracy at the University of Louisville. This is Dave Buckley, CAD's director, and Paul Weber, endowed chair in politics, science, and religion. I want to, before we get started today, give one final word of thanks uh, to CAD's former graduate assistant, Tori Dahl. Uh, Tori was at the center of all things podcast for the last year plus. Um, she uh, she brought a real gift to the pod and uh, and learned a lot on the job too. Um, and we we're so grateful for her work with us uh, here at CAD. We're super proud of her graduation. This is uh, the way of the world and that she'll be joining uh, our friends at the World Affairs Council here in town um, in the coming weeks. Um, this means that uh, we've now got a new set of helping hands around the pod. Um, this week, very grad, glad to welcome our new graduate assistant, Will Wigginton, in uh, to step in. And this week, we're also thrilled to have hired um, Cherith Jones to welcome her to our team at CAD, working on various things related to the pod and social media and online presence. Um, so that should be enough people to keep the pod pointed in the right direction um, as I spin the wheels here. Speaking of the pod, welcome to the new year. Uh, we're getting started today with a case whose civil war has again been in global headlines in recent weeks, uh, Myanmar. Um, as always, all of our episodes are accessible on the CAD website through the University of Louisville, as well as through Spotify and Apple Podcasts um, and our social media feeds on Facebook and Twitter. Just search Center for Asian Democracy. Subscribe, review, and stay up to date on future content. We are joined today. Uh, by Dr. Jacques Bertrand for a discussion on the Myanmar civil war and the political prospects for a path away from violence and potentially, eventually, closer to real democracy in the country. Uh, Jacques' research is so important, both for helping make sense of why the country's civil war presents such challenges to resolution, um, and also thinking hard about the institutional options and paths that both might make progress, but also um, have, uh, have not yielded progress in the country's recent past, including in the uh, relatively brief but but real window of, of democratic opening uh, before the country's coup a couple of years ago. Jack Bertrand is professor of political science at the University of Toronto, as well as director of the collaborative master's specialization in contemporary East and Southeast Asian studies, um, also at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Affairs at uh, U of T. He was the founding director of the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at the Asian Institute um, and is also the co-founder of the University of Toronto's post-core uh, research lab. Professor Bertrand has worked for many years on issues of ethnic conflict, nationalism, uh, and democracy in Southeast Asia. Um, his most recent book, uh, published with co-authors in 2022, was entitled Winning by Progress, sorry, Winning by Process, the State and Neutralization of Ethnic Minorities in Myanmar, uh, published from Cornell um, recently. Uh, in the year before that, he published Democracy and Nationalist Struggles in Southeast Asia, from Secessionist Mobilization to Conflict Resolution. Um, and we're actually going to talk sort of, you'll hear a bit about both um, the Myanmar specific dynamics in, in recent weeks, as well as what some of the broader trends across the region uh, about the relationship between nationalism, democracy, and conflict um, might have to teach us about the case. Um, as you'll hear in our conversation, uh, the post-coup civil war in Myanmar has been back in the headlines in recent weeks, uh, in large part because uh, an opposition offensive that started in 2023 seems to have shaken up the status quo, at least in some parts of the country. Um, but the next steps are less clear. Uh, the incentives facing armed groups, ethnic political parties, uh, the country's military, um, and other social movements in the country are complex, um, and the conflict's impact on regional powers, especially China, um, adds another layer to any analysis. Jacques' research is especially important and helpful in making sense of why the country's previous window of democratization didn't stay open, 
um, and some of the decisions that might um, encourage key actors in the country to avoid a similar situation um, in the future. There's plenty to talk about. So without any more delay, let's turn to Professor Jacques Bertrand. Well, Jacques, thanks so much for being here with us today. It's great to get the chance to talk with you. Great. Thanks for having me. Um, okay, so um, we're going to talk about um, Myanmar and your kind of research on civil wars in Myanmar and um, and potential paths out of them. Um, the case has been in the headlines recently um, uh, because of the most recent stage in that civil war, especially kind of international reporting about progress for resistance forces and opposition forces. Um, can you start out by just giving us a quick update as you understand it for um, kind of the, the state of the conflict between the military government and the resistance alliance in security terms at this point? So basically, uh, there's been a lot in the press since the October 1027 operation. That's been basically a new, what is seen as a new phase in the last two years of the of this civil war, where uh, the Brotherhood Alliance um, essentially attacked uh, and and made significant inroads territorially and in capturing a few towns uh, in the last couple of months. Uh, so that's seen as a new phase in what has been the resistance the last two years, simply uh, because up until then. Uh, there had been pretty much a stalemate between the, the military and most of the resistance forces. And, and the, the most powerful ethnic armed organizations are the ones situated in the, in the north, and those are uh, the ones that, that now have um, made some, some significant inroads in the last couple of months. I mean, so. is, is there any sense that this represents um, kind of a broader weakening in the military's capacity? Or is this, do you have a sense kind of down to local dynamics in this particular part of the country where the opposition has advantages in organizational capacity or something like that? So militarily, it's a little bit difficult to, to put one's finger on on uh, whether the Tatmadaw, which is the, the Myanmar military, uh, is really not able to to continue to fight at the intensity it has been doing in the past. So the numbers are, you know, the, the ones I've read is that the at its height, the Myanmar military had about 400,000 people. Uh, 120,000 is the numbers that one uh, officially uh, were supposed to be uh, still around uh, at the time of the coup. And now, um, for the most part, the numbers we're hearing are that there are 70,000 uh, possibly on the uh, Myanmar military side because there would be a lot, some soldiers would have defected, would have gone to the other side. Sure. So militarily, um, obviously, the, the Myanmar military has weakened, but it still has significant armament in terms of it has capacity to bomb, has rockets. It's being provided these weapons by China. Uh, and so it, it, it certainly can continue to inflict significant damage. So one has to take that into account when, when seeing that the, even though these are armed groups, uh, opposition armed groups that are uh, militarily some of the strongest that have now, uh, they, they had, some of them had tacit agreements with the military to not get involved in the resistance as much op openly. Now they're, they, they have basically uh, gained some territory um, 
Uh, at the same time, one shouldn't see this as a trend. I think it's a bit too optimistic to think that this means that the military is about to collapse. The military still has a lot of capacity to continue bombing. Yeah. Um, like we've talked about kind of the opposition so far, but obviously that's sort of simplifying things in the Myanmar context. Could, how would you, um, how do you think about cohesion within the opposition and who the major players are within the opposition right now, especially in this part of the country where there's been this kind of military breakthrough in recent days? Okay. So if, if it's a very, you know, Myanmar is extremely complex, but if I can get into some of the detail, um, one has to remember that uh, this broader civil war has been going on for 60 years. There have been some armed groups that have been there basically since 1949. The Karen, the KNU, uh, on the Thai border has been there, has been one of the first that opposed the, the government. They are a significant force in this particular uh, phase. Um, a, a smaller group, the Kareni, also on the Thai border, they've been one of the strongest um, resistors, even though they're a very small army and a small ethnic group. Uh, but they're militarily, compared to some of the ones in the north on the Chinese border, militarily they're not, they're not very strong. Mm. Um, so they're able, they're, they're benefiting now from more of the, the Bama majority that have joined them to fight against uh, the government. But they, that, that remains quite localized. On the Chinese border, things are a little bit different because then it gets even more complex. There are groups that this, this Brotherhood Alliance that I was talking about, they have been um, basically uh, never were in alliance in the last few years with the other uh, armed groups. These armed groups had during the semi-democratic period up until 2021, had had negotiations, some of them with the government. They had some sometimes alliances, not formal military alliances, but certainly some discussions among each other. But those three groups that have been the ones that have attacked in, since October, they always remained um, pretty much independent from those negotiations. So that's the Arakan Army, which was formed essentially in 2009 as a new armed group representing the Rakhine. Even though they were far from Rakhine State, they were formed and supported in the north um, of, of Myanmar on the Chai, uh, Thai border. Uh, there's the um, uh, MNDAA, which is essentially some, uh, they, they are claiming Kokang, which is an area basically of ethnic Chinese. And then there's the Taong uh, National, uh, the TNLA, National Liberation Army, so the Taong uh, uh, National Liberation Army, and they, the TNLA uh, is a, a significant force on, on the border as well. Now, that uh, alliance, they have uh, benefited from militarily obtaining uh, weapons from the WA, which are also in that area. They have had basically their own state, control over their own state, because they're the largest, most significant army in the ethnic resistance. The WA do their own thing. They're not interested in, in either and being on either side. They're benefiting from supplying weapons to this other broader alliance. This alliance um, is, has its own objectives of territorial expansion and consolidation, whereas the ones on the Thai border um, are fighting their own sort of local resistance. And then there's just the last ones I want to mention for now, in the Shan state, there are two significant groups. One is the uh, RCSS, uh, which is a, a Shan 
resistance army, and then the SSPP, also a Shan resistance army. They have been against one another um, for several years trying to control the, the Shan state. So why is this difficult? Because the TNLA I just mentioned, the Kokang, they're all in Shan state as well. So within just imagining, just in that area of Myanmar, there is competition for that same territory among some of these armed groups. So it's difficult to create a, a political alliance between all of these organizations, but also concretely some military uh, okay, alliances or even common really objectives get contradicted by competition. security side of things, you also have, uh, in theory, a kind of national unity government that is politically trying to organize the opposition. How would you then talk about the relationship between that as a political reality and the security forces that you're talking about here? I mean, right. this, I assume that, again, this isn't exactly one ship pointed in the same direction. No, so again, the... The problem with the national unity government is that they were formed originally after the coup of 2021. Um, the coup had removed Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy, which had won the election. Um, and the NUG claimed to be uh, not only trying to form the government that had been duly elected, but found itself politically in a difficult situation where the NLD didn't have enough legitimacy among ethnic armed groups, certainly, and among some of the opposition constituency to essentially regroup itself as NLD uh, outside of, uh, of government. So the biggest problem for the national unity government, uh, the original foundation of the national unity government, was to try to disassociate itself from being overwhelmingly the NLD and giving more representation and power to ethnic uh, minorities in its government. So politically, it's been trying to create some alliances with uh, ethnic minority groups uh, and then trying to organize some military coordination between ethnic armed organizations in what is the if you like, the military component of the resistance among the Bomai majority, which is the PDFs, the People's Defense Forces. Now, these PDFs, they're not very well coordinated. Some of them are under NUG, some of them are not. So they're, militarily, there's a difficulty uh, of coordination between what the PDFs are doing and then the ethnic uh, armed organizations. And politically, the ethnic armed organizations don't uh, take uh, orders from the NUG. So it's a, it's a bit of a balancing act. Now, it's one that was also present prior to 2020. Yeah, this isn't new, right? right? I, I mean, mean the, like, the vast diversity of... The ethnic armed organizations yeah. now are reclaiming a kind of um, monopoly of representation of their respective ethnic groups because the ethnic political parties are no longer there. Uh, and then the representatives that the NUG has created has been, basically, they're not elected, they've been selected uh, in the government. Um, so it's the ethnic armed organizations now have the upper hand, again, of being, of claiming to be the representatives of ethnic uh, minority groups. But in the past, this had started to be diluted, right? Because you had ethnic political parties, you had people who were ethnic representatives within the NLD government and within the NLD party, and then you had ethnic armed organizations. So um, 
that creates a political difficulty also among ethnic uh, organizations. Who are the legitimate representatives? Is it the the, the, the ethnic arm organizations or some? Yeah, I mean, so we've started to hear some reporting about sort of ceasefire, not just started to, this has been going on actually for a couple of months, right? Um, some discussions about potential ceasefire dynamics and negotiations. I mean, how, as, as somebody who studies conflict dynamics, how do you think about the reconsolidation of authority by the armed groups within the ethnic minorities, right? The sort of marginalization of political parties and the consolidation of, of authority within the armed groups. Does that make it easier to have credible agreements between those ethnic groups and the military if negotiations start, or does it um, does it empower hardliners and make it more difficult because of that? Or like, how do you think about how that impacts negotiations that might start out? So what what we do know, I mean, there's been a ceasefire uh, announced in the last couple of days. We don't know what the um, what the content is. That ceasefire is really with that uh, brother. Brotherhood Alliance, uh, the three um, three organizations I mentioned earlier, that is a unlikely to be uh, signaling ne- serious negotiations, and they are certainly not claiming representation of any other parts of the of the resistance. So it's a very limited um, uh, ceasefire. Part of the problem with with that particular uh, segment of the resistance is that their interest is starting to look like what they're they're hoping to gain is perhaps looking more like the WAS state than a negotiated agreement that they were that other groups were a trying com- to comprehensive trying to reach yeah. prior to 2021 mm. right so yeah. it might well be that what they end up agreeing to with the military is um, simply having control over resources that are in their territory, allowing them to have their own governance, and basically letting them continue uh, as they are. Yeah, and that kind of a side agreement that focuses on security and economic control satisfies them, but doesn't move forward the broader political kind of And so far, most of the other ethnic arm organizations and the NUG refuse to get into negotiations with the military. Mm. So uh, we can talk about what could potentially happen in the future should there be uh, certain kinds of negotiations de- depending on who um, who was victorious uh, in in or or if there are change of the dyna- dynamic um, but um, but we're not seeing that yet so yeah. That- yeah, maybe real quick before we get to potential negotiations, I could ask you about the military side of things. Because, again, so far we've mostly been talking about the military kind of in the singular. Um, I actually don't know the, the local landscape in this case very well at all. But we do sometimes hear about kind of in divisions within militaries strategically and also maybe even economically in terms of their interests. Um, do you have any sense about internal cohesion of the kind of political preferences of the military right now in Myanmar? Is there any sense of strategic disagreement that's been observable to outside uh, observers? Militaries are um, very enormously from highly transparent <laughs> to, to, to not at all. And, and uh, the Tatmadaw, the, Tatmada, the would military, be one end of that spectrum. Uh, the, is, yeah. has been at one end. I mean, this has been a military that has really managed to ingrain and socialize soldiers in respecting the, the hierarchy and the, uh, in the chain of command that all I've heard in the last few years is that even if we tried to read, for instance, why they opened up in 2011, and surely, and we saw some, some 
um, some disagreements among some of the generals that became civilian uh, in 2011. There were some, there appeared to be some divisions as well, and we heard about divisions between Tain Sein, for instance, mm -hmm. and Tan Shui, uh, in that you know, Tain Sein, Tan Shui saw Tain Sein as somebody relatively weak and therefore thought this would be the right choice for somebody who would become the, the, the general who would be the, the, the leader of the civilian government um, only to realize that Tain Sein had his own agenda and was going further than what supposedly we hear some of the more conservative generals would have liked things to, to be. So, you know, we've heard in 2011, we were hearing that there were some disagreements among some of the generals in terms of how rapidly or how significant the changes should go after 2011. But uh, the insights since 2021 have been, you know, Ming Longlang appears to be quite uh, in, clearly in charge. Um, there was one um, senior officer, a general, I think, that... Um, was removed on charges of corruption relatively recently. Um, unclear whether that came more from a policy division internally, and corruption's always used you as mean a convenient it might not have been way. a sincere but charge? No, we don't see a huge... <laughs> this is not a military that we can read um, divide, divisions between hardliners and softliners yeah. and, and opportunities to, to make, make inroads. Okay. The only... The only um, it's just going back to what I was said before, is that what we're, what we're seeing here is that there appears to be more soldiers who are soldiers in name rather than really soldiers. And that, that's indicative more of troops that have perhaps at the lower levels um, left the army, but that's about as much as at least, you know, that I know uh, in terms of the, the um, potential divisions within. So. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the reporting that I've seen about the most recent ceasefire uh, put China, you know, in the kind of mediator role, or at least involved in some way. Um, it's obviously the part of the country that's right up on the on the Chinese border. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, the nature of China's interests in um, in this current environment, um, and uh, and what role they're likely to play in the uh, in this uh, next period? China is always a little difficult to read for the same reasons as. Um because they're not exactly transparent in terms of what they're trying to do. Um, we only read by what their actions are and at times get some internal insights. But for the most part, the Chinese have been interested in stability. That's been the, the most important part for them, and stability specifically on their border. They don't want refugees flowing over. They just don't want chaos at the border. They want trade routes to maintain, to be maintained. They have interests in infrastructural projects in Myanmar. They don't want those to be disrupted. Uh, so. Part of them brokering, if you like, this latest ceasefire was that the, because, as I explained earlier on, most of the clashes and most of the intensity of the civil war in the last little while has been in the in the north and close to the border. Yeah, right on the border. Right, right on the right? border. Yeah. Uh, they definitely wanted to stabilize that that area, uh, and and so they put pressure uh, to reopen trade routes. Uh, they're also, interestingly enough, this is an aside that's quite quite. Uh, I don't know how much credence we need to give to us, but it appears that um, the conflict has also stimulated a lot of cybercrime that was based basically just across the border within um, that area of, of, of Myanmar in the Shan State. And, and so part of uh, their interest in, in, a, in a ceasefire 
uh, was also that the, the, the groups were going to stabilize and crack down on these uh, on, on the cybercrime uh, that was affecting basically So this was cybercrime impacting Chinese impacting interests? Impacting Chinese interests, yes. So these are... Uh, um, not 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 targeted at the Chinese government, Chinese yeah, targeting yeah, yeah, yeah. Chinese Economic citizens interests. and other right. Yeah. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so there 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 are a couple of these interests in mind as to you know China otherwise has been playing two sides. Um, they are they've been arming uh, the junta. They have moved a little bit away from directly supporting the the Mian, the Tatmada, but on the other hand, they're not cutting. They're not. Uh, supporting the uh, the opposition, I think it's a, a bit of a wait and see, as is classic of Chinese government foreign yeah, policy sure. at time. Uh, just wait and see who you can side with. Um, yeah, I mean, is it plausible that that <laughs> at some point they would say to the military, um, "You need to cut a deal here, at least in this one region, because this is this is causing us problems, and you can't get it resolved, and so autonomy." Well, sir- you got it. You have to bite the bullet and accept autonomy in this particular part of the country, anyway. Well, the likely likely scenario is is that the for now, at least for the medium, the the, the short to medium term, is that it allows the the military to regroup and the it, the autonomy would be an autonomy led by armed groups with yes. not a whole lot of actual. Um, constitutionalized governance, right? This is they would not be pressuring to go towards any kind of new arrangement that would formally recognize autonomy would be a de facto autonomy. Mm, uh, that yeah. is that is um, maybe a scenario that um, I see as, as, as likely and possible. Uh, I get into a lot of speculation and thinking, you know, does that lead to the Chinese then uh, supporting the junta's planned election, which has not been happening, um, and, and that would, you know, be a door towards stabilizing more of the, of the country. Um, that would be certainly from the part of the resistance. They're not willing to participate in most of the other part of the resistance, participate in any election. Um, I don't think the Chinese would put any pressure for the military to hold an election. I think they'd prefer that <laughs> they could just regroup militarily and stabilize, stabilize part of the, the territory. Situation. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I mean, if our, if our audience who isn't like deeply enmeshed in Myanmar news uh, has tracked much about the country in the recent past, in addition to the coup and the post-coup conflict, it's probably been the Rohingya sort of situation and, and the, um, the violence and, and also the, the refugee flows tied to that. Um, could you real quick just uh, explain how, if at all, in the post-coup period, this violence uh, and, and the, the changing nature of the civil war has impacted displacement? I mean, are we seeing – is the military still focused on some of the, um, the uh, campaigns against communities like the Rohingya, or are they now sort of fully occupied with um, – with combat against some of these armed groups, so the, the military is fully occupied with mm. with its war against all the other armed groups. In fact, it's overstretched. It's having a lot of trouble. Part of signing a ceasefire in the Shan State is to that, so that it could reduce its its fronts. Um, it mostly got uh, displaced the largest amount of, of of Rohingya. Right, most Rohingya have left and and they have not returned. The biggest drama is that the the discussions around what was the quote-unquote solution for the Rohingya that was discussed most significantly in the international community was that nobody was going to take um, 
a formal role in resettling refugees in, into their uh, communities. Many countries took some in, but this was not going to be a broader solution. The solution that was being discussed and proposed was that the Myanmar government was going to have a, uh, a policy to resettle them back in uh, to, to Myanmar, and that was the pathway to the solution for, for the Rohingya some reconstruction of destroyed homes, giving back some land. So what has completely halted is that now there is no pathway through the Rohingya for, for there's neither a pathway internationally, so it's the refugees that end up leaving and finding their way uh, across borders in different places. Otherwise, they're still in uh, refugee camps and mostly in Bangladesh, Bangladesh. and along the, the border. Uh, those that are within uh, Myanmar, they are also internal refugees to the extent they've been affected by some of the movements of troops, the Arakan army uh, and, and, and the Tatmadaw have been fighting in Rakhine state. Uh, they have been affected to some extent. But right now, the Arakan army is controlling many of the areas where the Rohingya are. It's a bit of a, of a status quo uh, for the Rohingya. But, um, and politically, the NUG and, and some of the armed groups, including Arakan army, are starting to to accept the Rohingya a little more, which is, um, at least the Arakan army, one could be a little suspicious because the Rakhine nationalists were part of the problem originally. Mm. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so that's, uh, you know, sort of a spotlight on, on where the situation is right now as we kind of record in mid-January. Uh, um, you've been doing research on conflict in the country for, for quite some time, including your book, Winning by Process, that came out uh, a couple years ago. Um, that was focused especially on um, the r relative, uh, about a decade of, of, uh, of potential political opening um, and improvement in the security situation. Um, it's a nuanced book, so we, we can't sort of encapsulate the entire argument right here. Um, but just briefly, how, uh, how do you sum up um, kind of the lessons to be learned from that period and what that might teach us about if a window opened again um, for political opening? Um, what institutional steps, what kind of political steps could have been delivered or could be delivered in that type of window that might be meaningful? So the, the argument, so winning by process, um, the, the title of the book captures the fact that after 60 years of civil war, uh, neither side thought they were going to be winning by war, and there had never been significant agreement, never negotiated agreement. And, and this was a first uh, in the last 10 years before the coup that there was actually formal negotiations uh, that, that were credible because this was a, a, a semi-democratic period. It wasn't perfect, but it did increase the credibility that these, that there could be uh, an agreement uh, that, that, that could come out of, of this process. Now, what, what we write about in the book is that we need to understand negotiations not just in terms of the formal uh, agreements that are being negotiated at the negotiation table, but also in terms of how um, the relations between uh, the communities that are in conflict with one another is being uh, actually changed and transformed in a period such as the one in Myanmar, where you, you didn't just have a, a war and then a negotiated agreement. There was actually a new constitution in place that was redrawing uh, the, the divisions of power between what are ethnic states 
and, and ethnic minority representation and the government. So uh, what we capture in there was how what was happening in the, in the formal negotiations is one uh, part, and, and, and a lot of that was going at a very, very slow pace and not delivering a huge amount of uh, significant agreements on what ethnic minorities really wanted, which is federalism. So they talked about very vague principles uh, and, and principles that are difficult to disagree with. They, so they had agreement on some very broad issues, such as uh, gender equality, for instance, as being a principle. Nothing that anybody would be objecting to. Mm. But when it came to real day talking about federalism, not so much. Meanwhile, the government was implementing a new model where it had parliaments, uh, executives in ethnic minority states that were given slowly more powers through a decentralization scheme. That was enshrining a mode of government that was the preference of the Myanmar government and, and empowering ethnic uh, minorities in these uh, local apparatuses, right? And so it started to dilute representation from ethnic arm organizations to now players in these parliaments, states, ethnic minority political parties were, were involved as well. So you multiply the number of um, sites of representation, a little bit of power being divulged, uh, or, or uh, sorry, uh, decentralized to ethnic states, starting to look like a model that the that the the government has traditionally been very um, supportive of, which is federalism, really in name, not really in reality, more just a few decentralized powers, but mostly mostly in a centralized state, uh, and then ways in which. Some of these agreements were allowing them to, to divide ethnic minority groups as well. So a, a third component here is to think about how um, one of the big issues with Myanmar is that ethnic ethnicity has always been politicized. But this notion of ethnic minority states falsely captures a sense that there are these seven large groups. Natural, organic. Natural, organic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but the government actually recognizes 135 different ethnic nationalities. This constitution in 2008 gave lots of conditions where they can get autonomous regions or certain kinds of representation and so forth. So it started to break up, fragment some of these larger groups, created new sources of mobilization of ethnicity around other issues. Once you take all of this together, it starts looking like uh, not necessarily wholly intentional scheme on the part of the government, but certainly one that de facto was dividing up ethnic groups, diluting representation, giving just a little bit of decentralization to ethnic states, and then not a whole lot in- and Not really delivering in, the goods In either. the formal negotiations, yeah. being able to manipulate the outcome. So we call this neutralization. So they were- they were winning by process because through these different ways, they were managing to get the kind of state they would hope for, uh, the, they meaning the, the state dominated by the Bama majority, and in a sense, the ethnic minorities were losing sight over how much they were losing without, being, without this being done by war. So what's the, the lesson for the future? Should there be any kind of renewal, say, you know, as a scenario, which is the scenario the most people in the resistance are really 
optimistic about is that the national unity government would, um, and the, 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 the current resistance, would, would finally uh, create, uh, would either topple the military, or the military would, would be significantly weakened, that it would allow them to a path to, to power. We're still back then to what will necessarily be a Bama majority, which is 60% of the population, that's so a, a national unity government that might have a Bama majority, who have now subscribed to a, um, a federal democracy as a principle, a draft constitution, uh, but at the same time, uh, it hasn't gone very far, the discussions, in terms of what it means when you implement uh, a concept of federal democracy. So what we, the lessons from the last 10 years was that even under a democratic government, uh, and this could be a highly democratic government, uh, the next one, if, if they were to be victorious against the, the, the military, it will be very tricky to find um, the, the right balance in terms of the powers that the ethnic minorities are asking not reproduce the sort of divide and rule or divide and fragmentation that, that occurred in the 10 years before. Uh, and so be, being very cautious of, it's, it's a landmine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At different levels, not only in terms of formal negotiations, but they'll start governing. And once you start governing and you start empowering, giving voice to ethnic parties, that's all very good. But then there has to be a, a way in which they come and and, and, and recognize that diluting representation means they have to accept the consequences of this, right? Yeah. Ethnic arm organizations have to, have to have a pathway to form their own parties or ally with parties so that they feel empowered even if they lose basically their own representation, that monopoly of representation they're claiming now. Yeah. Um, okay, this is a little bit of a pivot, but you've, you've done a lot of scholarship, obviously, over the years on nationalism also in the region. And, um, you know, I'm contractually obligated to get a religion and politics question in here, even if it's kind of oblique. Um, there's been a lot of scholarship in the past, like, decade plus on, you know, different aspects of kind of religious nationalism, Buddhist nationalism among the majority in, uh, in Myanmar. Um, I saw at least some reporting around the post-coup protests, um, about kind of some elements of the Sangha playing a kind of pro-opposition role in um, joining protests in, in urban areas, maybe it seemed to, anyway, mostly to me. I don't know, have you tracked anything about sort of dynamics within kind of Buddhist nationalism, within that majority community, and how that's playing out? Are the kind of powerful cultural forces generally kind of rallying behind the military as time has gone by, or is there a sense of kind of the the nationalist project on the um, on the opposition side. So I haven't been tracking uh, this very carefully, but there's there really hasn't been, uh, you know, a very strong movement. For instance, in 2017, or uh, sorry, in in prior to the uh, to, to 2007, the Saffron Revolution was a was a really um, defining moment for the politicize, politicization of the Sangha. And the Sangha doesn't really like to play an overtly political role. There are some uh, monks who do. Uh, Riratu was one of the famous ones, and there have been, uh, there have been some moments where some uh, Buddhist monks have take, tried to, in some ways, gain some, some authority, legitimacy, and following by becoming more political. But for the most part, 
the way I see it, is that they, they, they prefer as a whole to not play a, a outwardly uh, political role. So when they do, it's usually in very significant moments. So uh, that sort of broad support or the move, the Saffron Revolution was, was interesting because they were, they were signaling that, um, that there was a, a common uh, support for change. Uh, and, and I think that played a little bit, at least, uh, not insignificantly, into the transition to a civilian government. Mm. That can't possibly be too far in the memories of the generals. That being said, we're not seeing a new Saffron Revolution at the moment, uh, nor are we seeing um, uh, support, overt, overt, uh, open support for the, uh, for the military, right, for the junta. So I think for the most part, uh, they're kind of playing a bit... Um, on the side, obviously, most of the the Bama now are are in opposition to the junta. Uh, it's pretty clear the Sangha is likely on their side, on the side of the resistance. They're just not playing a, a role but at the, for, at the forefront. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe we could just get out of here by by asking you to um, to to give your sense of where things are now relative to the kind of immediate post-coup environment, or I mean, about the sort of medium-term prospects for multi-ethnic federal democracy in Myanmar. Would you, obviously there's serious obstacles, so I don't know that the percentage would ever have been super high, but would you think of it as a more likely outcome now than two years ago? Or, or how do you think about the medium-term prospects? So the difficulty of that, about predicting is that I'm necessarily going to be wrong because uh, somebody is going to listen to this and in a year and a half and two and say the predictive powers of political science are pretty failing li again. limited and failing again. But I mean, if we look at the longer term, the problem is there's the longer term trends in Myanmar and then there's the shorter term. The, long, the shorter term trends um, is that there was a lot of enthusiasm. There continues to be a lot of enthusiasm, and one wants to be really optimistic about the fact that there's something that has changed, fund we hope, fundamentally, in the approach, the attitude, and openness, particularly of the young generation. I think it's still true today, and two, year, for two years past, that um, there is a, a generational change maybe occurring, the question is, is it going to be socialized and institutionalized? And what do I mean by that? I mean that, that the youth seem to be much less uh, remembering the reasons why they were divided between Bama and ethnic minorities, for instance. There is much more likely to be a, a more inclusive attitude. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of what we've heard in the last two years are people seeing that or saying that they, they were so wrong in resisting uh, a, a kind of federal arrangement or a conciliatory approach towards ethnic minorities and that their attitudes have changed and they've learned. I think there's something very genuine in, in, some, in, in, uh, in the intentions and the approach and particularly, like I said, among the young. Um, but it gets, it, it's against the backdrop of generations of very, very highly internalized sort of hierarchy of ethnicities in, in, in Burma, Bama dominance being very strong. People thought that, and that Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD, having had alliances with ethnic political parties in the 1988 to 1990 period, um, was going to, post-2015, to suddenly be the peacemaker and, and, and reveal herself to make large concessions 
to ethnic uh, minority groups, well, the negotiations post-2015 were worse for ethnic minorities than they had been during the, uh, the uh, USDP period, uh, which was the, the, the military-dominated military. civilian party, right? So where does that lead us? Should there be, a, you know, in the medium term, one, I think we're probably closer because at least the federal democracy is being um, agreed as a, as a principle. Um, but there's, a, there's so many obstacles between now and then. And, and the biggest obstacle is that, and one that we haven't talked about very much, is that I think the, 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 the common goal right now is to remove the Tatmadaw from power. But what is not being discussed, you just can't eliminate the military. One way or the other, even if they, they, they give up and they, they decide to end the, their, their, their side of the civil war, they get, let the NUG come back, there is going to have to be a compromise with what, what remains of the military. This is the way transitions to democracy have occurred across the world for many decades. Uh, those that have tried to go after the military and remove them usually found themselves with another coup in these kind of vicious circles. Um, so, so in the medium term, that's going to be an important discussion as well. And how that comes out may be very different in terms of the, you know, the broad agreement here uh, for federal democracy. Yeah, well, that's just great. Um, thanks so much for for sharing your wisdom on this case. It's been in the headlines, and um, and we'll see what the short term dynamics are. But your uh, you know guidance to the long term structural forces at play here is is uh, super important to keep in mind, and uh, and helps us make sense of those headlines. Um, for those listening, thanks for being back with us. This is our first episode actually of 2024 uh, as we launch into the new year. We'll be back before long um, with uh, looks at other. Uh, short-term political outcomes in the region, elections and the like, and also some of the longer-term issues that face democracy across the region. Um, As always, uh, you can find the CAD podcast uh, through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and through our website at UofL. Um, Keep an eye on our website as well as social media, Facebook and Twitter especially, uh, for announcements about upcoming events, um, both in-person and hybrid events that folks can take advantage of. Until then, we'll see you next time.